you rich. Just piling on about the equipping classes, if you're sitting there listening to that and you're thinking, ah, like which one do I choose? Um, they both sound great. I'm interested in missions, but uh, also very interested in culture and what's happening. Strange New World is a book title by Carl Truman. So the series that we're going to be teaching through is based on that book. It's arguably one of the most important books on culture and Christianity in my lifetime. So it's, it's a good read. It's called Strange New World. There's a longer version, um, but I would recommend to start with a short, shorter version if uh, you want to read that. Very illuminating. And both series, I think, will be recorded. So if you pick one, you can always listen to the, to the other one. All right? Well, it is a joy to be back with you guys after our missional focus weekend. And if you're new today, my name is Clay. I'm one of the pastors here at Timberlake. And if I haven't met you yet, I would love to, so don't be shy. Please come up and meet me, meet my wife. She's back there. Any of our kids back there? No? Okay, not today. Well, speaking of our kids, most of you know that Mary and I are proud parents of three beautiful children. Parenting is a joy, but it is a lot of hard work. So, just giving that disclaimer, those of you who want to be parents. My wife bears the brunt of this work. She spends virtually all her waking hours feeding our children, cleaning up after our children, setting up something for them, reading to them, educating them, arbitrating between them, maybe fixing something for them. And this past year, uh, she's been training them in some basic chores. Okay, So they're one, three, and five. Those are our age, ages. Very young family. She's been training them in some basic chores, some things like emptying the dishwasher, making their beds, folding their jammies, and they love to help. So, did you see what I did there? I put that in quotes. That is a generous way. Help is a generous way of putting it. It's more of a complication. So, it's, it's worth it, but, but parenting is an absolute joy. It's, it is this astounding privilege to be used by God to shape a soul but it is a lot of work. Now, why do we do all that work? And why am I talking about parenting? Well, we want them to mature. We want our kids to grow up. That's why we do the work. That's why we put it in. And it might not seem like that if you're, you know, around parents, as sentimental as we can be, you know, about our little babies. Who doesn't, you know, miss the, the jammy stage, you know, when they're, when they're graduated from theirs, you know. But we do want them to grow. We take pains And we even add increased complication into our lives to teach them how to do things. To educate them. To let them experiment and fail. We want them to make progress. And it's our great joy to see them do it as parents. Even if they come out with their shirt on backwards. They're trying, right? You see, God, our Heavenly Father, He's no different. In fact, He's much more profound than an earthly parent. His goal for His people is that we grow up or we mature. That's another way of putting it in Scripture. God wants to see us change and He's committed. He's committed Himself to help us do that. So this morning, I'm excited to start a series on growth. And I'm going to call it Growing Up. All right? Growing Up. And it's going to be about how God Himself matures us in the image of His Son. So it's a series on growth, God's goal for us in maturity. 
Now, we could argue that growth or becoming mature is God's supreme goal for us. He is working all things out for us to come to resemble Christ. Everything for His people. It's being worked out for us to be conformed to the image of His Son. Or we might say it like this. It's to be restored to resemble Him. Restored to resemble Him. That's because we used to resemble Him gloriously back in the day. Long day ago. In Genesis 1, God created us in His image to resemble Him. We wrecked that in our mutiny at the fall. And we've been rebelling ever since. But God has been and will always be committed to this vision for human beings. He sent His Son to die for our rebellion. That's true. But He also sent His Son to restore us to Himself and to enable us to live a new kind of life in Christ right now. Jesus was and is the very image of God. He is the true human, the standard for what God wants us to become as humans. And Jesus gives His followers God's own Spirit who works to transform us back into God's image as we were once created to be. And that's God's goal for us. That's His vision. That's the work that He delights in. And He's working all things toward in my life and in your life. And when the Lord saved the Apostle Paul, He commissioned him, and it was this vision that he was commissioned to. And it compelled Paul. It drove him to make sacrifices, to suffer. This vision of seeing the people of God not simply forgiven through Christ, as glorious as that is, but progressively changed, progressively transformed in the here and now, In fact, he says in the letter to the Colossians that it is his goal for every single person in the church. Listen to this language in Colossians 1.28. You can just follow along on the screen. Him we proclaim. He's talking about Christ. Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom for a reason, in order that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Did you catch that language? Every single person. He repeats it three times so we don't miss it. He is warning everybody, and it's in, in Greek it's even more emphatic, warning every person and teaching every person with all wisdom that we may present every person mature in Christ. No one's left behind. Every single church member in the churches that Paul planted, it was his goal to see them presented mature in Christ. To present them fully formed, trained, steady, in an adult status, a mature follower of Jesus. If you're a believer, that is Paul's goal for you because that's God's goal for you. 
And Paul absolutely spent himself for this goal. Listen to the next verse in verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul labored in preaching Christ. He labored publicly. He labored privately. He labored from the pulpit, so to speak. I think I don't know if they had pulpits, but he labored from something publicly. And he labored, he labored in counseling and discipleship interpersonally for one goal so that every person would grow to maturity. So he could present them mature in Christ. That's the ambitious vision. That's the glorious goal. Now, as clear as that is, as important as that is, this verse raises some questions if you're a thinking person. The first set of questions revolve around the concept of maturity itself. So what does Paul mean when he says he wants to present people mature in Christ? Is he talking about presenting us glorified on that final day? Or is this something we can achieve now in this life? If it's something that I'm supposed to achieve now, how would I know when I'm mature? Now, those are great questions. We're going to try to hit some of those today. But there's a second set of questions. Once we establish what maturity is, well, how does this happen? How do I become mature? Is God doing the maturing? Or am I responsible for it? Or is it some combination of both? And sadly, when it it comes to answering these questions, there's often a lot of confusion because we hear a lot of different things from a lot of different people, a lot of different Christians. And it stems, I think, from a lot of partial answers that are given. It's not comprehensive. So they might pick one area or there might be some bad answers, right? But there's a lot of partial answers that are given. We might say there's multiple approaches that are taught or even modeled as to how we grow to maturity, how we change. So... I did a little thought experiment preparing this lesson. I thought, okay, I'm going to sit down and think about all the ones I've heard and try to categorize them. So, here it goes. Here's some approaches to growth. Just introduction, all right? We'll call this first approach the careless approach. Not very endearing. The careless approach. This approach says that it doesn't really matter how we live because... Anybody fill in the blank? We're covered by grace. Doesn't matter how we live. Because we're covered by grace. It's okay if we don't mature because God loves us anyway. And it's all covered by grace anyway. We don't want to be legalistic. It's careless in that it doesn't really bother about growth or change. It doesn't really, it's not a big deal. Because we're we're good. So that's a careless approach. There is the serene approach. The serene approach, what do I mean by that? Well, this approach says that we should just relax when it comes to growth. Because it's God who does the growing. Our job is just to rest. To abide. We don't know what that means, but okay, abide. It's not on us to strive. In fact, if you're exerting effort, you're getting it all wrong. 
That's not the higher way. We need to just let it go. Let go and let God do the work. Now this approach is concerned about growth and it gets some things right. But it just minimizes our responsibility in the growth process. I call it the serene approach. It's kind of the rest approach. Then there's what I call the survival approach. This approach is just trying to get by. No, we're just trying to survive. Trying to survive this life, just trying to make it to heaven. It's not that transformation is not important to these people. It is important. It's just largely thought of to happen in the future. After we die. It's certainly going to happen in the future after we die. Okay. But this approach talks a lot about how we've been forgiven. Makes much of that very important. But it doesn't talk as much about the possibility of change in the here and now. They say things like, well, we're always going to have the flesh with us, which is true. And it never gets any better, so we're just trying to manage it without blowing up until we can get to glory. Just trying to hold it together, and that's essentially what I call a survivalist type of approach. Next, there's the supplemental approach to change. The supplemental approach, as the name implies, this approach says that we need to add something beyond what God's given us, beyond Scripture, beyond the power of His Spirit, beyond the growth process that God's laid out for us in Scripture. We need to add something to that to help us change. The Bible's good and all, but what we really need is a better educational system. Or, more influential and more controversial, is the idea that we need psychology if we're going to really change or help people change. We need to supplement the Bible's assessment of the soul with psychology's assessments of the soul. We need to integrate its findings with our Christian faith if we're going to change. And that's essentially what I would call a supplemental approach to change. All right, and finally, there's the simplistic approach. The simplistic approach to change. This approach gives us an overly simplistic assessment to people's problems and the solution for change. Those of you who are pursuing psychology or something like that, if you're not just overly offended with what I just said, you probably are pursuing that because of a simplistic view of change that you were taught. And you think psychology is a more robust model because it's actually helping people where they're at. But this simplistic approach simplistically assesses people's problems and the solutions for change. It says things like, people just need to go to church. People just need to read their Bibles. People just need to pray. They need to just stop sinning. It's as simple as that. Like, it's a problem. Now, these practices are crucial. We're going to see this in the coming weeks. Absolutely crucial. But the Bible's vision is far more robust. It explores what we will see as the inner man, the inner woman. It helps us unpack what's going on inside of us that leads to inner transformation that leads to outer transformation. 
Now, if, if you're like me, I'm sure that you resonated with one or more of these approaches to change. You may have had questions about them. But all of these approaches are, are either limited or flawed in one way or another. At best, they're partial approaches to change. They don't do justice to the Bible's robust vision of maturity, either of what it is or of how it happens. Many people are left floundering in sanctification because of misunderstandings when it comes to how we actually change. So, because of how central this theme is in Scripture and because of how relevant it is to all of us here today, and because of how much confusion there is surrounding this topic, I want to do an extended series on growth. We're going to take our time. I'm planning to span about nine Sundays on this. And my only goal is to give you a biblical framework for what this goal of maturity actually is and how it happens. So today, in the time we have left, let's explore that first set of questions that have to do with what maturity is, with what it actually looks like according to Scripture. We're going to answer the, we're going to just pick two of those questions. Look at what, what is maturity, and then how would, we, how would we recognize it? What would be the marks of someone who is mature? So, first one will go quick. What is maturity? What's Paul getting at when he says he's striving to present everyone mature in Christ? Now, the interesting thing about this word mature, that we translate mature, is it can be used in two similar ways in these kind of contexts when it comes to growth. Sometimes it's translated as perfect because it looks forward to God's ultimate goal when He fully glorifies us, when we're resurrected, never to sin again as God's people. So it's looking forward to that day of sinless perfection in the life that's to come. This Greek word can be translated perfect. But it's also translated as mature. As mature, and that's how we're using it right now. It often has the idea of someone that is healthy spiritually. A spiritual adult, if you will. But it doesn't mean they're completely perfect. Now, there's an interesting passage in Philippians 3 where we see both of these usages together. It's a, it's a similar, it's the same, same Greek term. One's a verb, one's a noun, I believe, and, but they're, it's the same term, but they're used in these, in these slightly different ways. Philippians 3, in verse 12, Paul will readily admit that he hasn't arrived at perfection. Not perfection word, that's our word. But he will also say, at the same time, that he is mature meaning he's reached a certain state of spiritual adulthood. All right, Philippians 3 says, Not that I have already obtained it, or already obtained this, or I'm already perfect. So he's talking about the resurrection from the dead in the context of Philippians. He's not already attained that. He's not already, he's not already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. So we see both senses of this word. Paul's saying, I'm not fully mature. I'm not in the sense of fully perfected. But he is, he has reached a state of maturity. So this means then that for us, what we're aiming at in this life is not complete perfection. As much as we might want to be completely perfect. (laughs) We, though, are aiming at what Paul calls maturity, at spiritual adulthood, and to continue on in this maturity more and more and more. We want to arrive there and then continue to press on to experience it more and more, looking to that final day of complete perfection and glorification that Christ will bring about at his coming. So that's what it is, and we're focusing in on that second usage in our series. But that raises another question. How do we know if someone's mature? How do I know if I'm mature? What am I shooting for? What makes a person mature versus immature, spiritually speaking? So we could bring all this together by asking the question, what are some marks of maturity? What are some of these evidences? What, what, what would give it away? So let's spend the time we have left and look quickly at just several marks of a mature person from Scripture. My advice will be just kind of Write some of these down. I might tell you to turn to some of these passages, but, but write them down and check them out on your own time. And looking at these marks are going to help us see kind of what we're aiming at. It's also going to help us see what kind of God is trying to produce in us. It's going to help us kind of locate where we're at on the spectrum. All right, so, and this is, just caveat, this is not comprehensive. And I'll tell you why at the end. Okay? I limited myself just to this word group in the New Testament and studying these passages that are related to the word group of maturity. All right, so a mature person is stabilized by truth, and they're not easily deceived. They're stabilized by truth and not easily deceived. You can turn to Ephesians 4. This is going to be one of our anchor passages for the next few minutes. You kind of have to zip through these. We're stabilized by the truth. We're not easily deceived. The mature person is, is that's, that's one of the marks. Now, again, we're, we're skimming off the top of some of these passages, uh, profound passages. Ephesians 4, he says in verse 11, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So he gave leadership to the church for a purpose, to equip these saints for the work of ministry, and that results in the building up of the body of Christ. Here's the goal. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God which is mature manhood, which is the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. 
So you heard there in verse 13 that mature manhood sits kind of right in the middle of this, these goals. Maturity is the goal of this equipping ministry of the church. Then so that, verse 14, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way. So my point here is just to show you that one of, the, one of the first and most important marks of a mature person or a mature church is stability that comes from the truth. In Ephesians 4, Paul says we're to be equipped in the church by these leaders so that we can arrive, he says, at a unified understanding of the faith. Do you see that? A unified understanding of the faith and a unified understanding of the true knowledge of the Son of God. Then, he equates that with this arrival at mature manhood and maturity. These are the same thing. This arrival at, at, at doctrinal truth and stability that comes from the truth is maturity. A mature person is someone then who knows Christ, who knows the truth about Him as revealed in His Word. And he doesn't just know it, but he's tethered to it. Like an anchor. It's convictional for the mature person. This man or woman wants to become mature. They want to be stabilized by the truth so that, he says, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So being a spiritual child means we're unsteady. We're floating. We're without an anchor. We're carried around by whatever teaching is presented. Instead, Paul says, a mature person is anchored by the truth. It steadies him or her. It's not easily deceived. It can... It can triage the lies of its own heart or the lies coming at it from others. It relies on the truth. So, God's goal is to produce this stabilization. And it only comes as we grow in Scripture. God wants to teach us to be skeptical of ourselves and, to, and, to, and skeptical of our own hearts, but to entrust ourselves fully to His perfect Word. And that reliance on Christ and His truth produces the next mark of maturity, which we'll call Christ-like character. So we could say a mature person is characterized by Christ-like behavior and not by fleshly impulses. It's characterized by Christ-like behavior, not by the impulses of the flesh that we were once enslaved to and dominated by. Now, I'm getting this from the same verse from Ephesians 4.13. Initially, we'll look at 1 Corinthians in a second, but Paul says in, chapter, in, in verse 13 here that the, this arrival at mature manhood is also an arrival to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You see that? Mature manhood is the arrival at the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's a mouthful, okay, from Paul. It's a profound mouthful. But he's talking about us becoming like Jesus in our lives. Behaving like him, or as Paul says here, measuring up to his height or his stature. In other words, 
A mature person is someone who resembles Christ's character. It's characterized by Christ-like behavior. We could also say it like this. A mature person is not dominated by the flesh or characterized by habituated patterns of sin. Do they still sin? Yeah. But they know how to deal with it. They know how to get back to the path of following Christ. An immature person is easily ensnared. And it does not always know how to get back out of that, back to Christ and following Christ. And Paul talks about this over in 1 Corinthians 3, which I think I have it on the screen here as well. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, even though they're Christians. He couldn't address them as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, yet ready, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So he tells the Corinthians that although they had the Spirit of God, he could not address them as spiritual people. That is shocking. Why? Because they were still fleshy, meaning they were characterized by sinful behavior instead of spiritual behavior. We're talking about patterns of life here. And he calls them infants in Christ. So what's he saying? He's saying the spiritual infanthood, immaturity, means someone is easily overtaken by fleshy or sinful behavior. They're easily captivated by lies. They fall prey to the same temptations day in and day out. And that's where we start in the Christian life. But God's goal for you and what He's aiming to produce is a steadiness in Christian character. A resemblance to Christ that's not perfect, but is unmistakable. He wants to equip you to know how to deal with your sin, how to entrust yourself to Him on a daily basis, how to make actual progress in the areas of your life. He wants to produce that sweet fruit of His Spirit in your life. And He's working all things, like we said, to that end. Romans 8, 28 and 29. And speaking of progress, that's actually another mark of maturity. A mature person is steadily progressing. And they are definitely not completely perfect. Now, we saw this earlier in Philippians 3, same, same text there. I'll just flick it back up on the screen here. A mature person is not one who has arrived at perfection. It's somebody who's making progress. That's exactly what Paul says here. Notice the language. I've not already obtained this, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus made me his own. That's huge. I don't consider that I made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what's behind. I'll strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on to the goal. And he's, and he's encouraging the mature people to think this way, like keep, keep thinking in terms of progress, not, not attainment to perfection. And a mark of maturity, he says, is that they think this way. What way? The way Paul just described, precisely as having not arrived. So think about that. Paul's saying a mature person knows that they are not perfect. In fact, a mature person 
we were to go back a little bit in, in chapter 3 of Philippians, a mature person knows they are nothing without Christ's righteousness. See chapter 3, verse 7. They know that all of our self-righteousness is like dung, Paul says, before God. We've got nothing. So the mature person then is one who rests in Christ alone and then pursues Christ because he knows that Christ has already laid hold of him, like Paul says here. A mature person steadily presses on in hope. They keep repenting. They keep trusting. They keep mortifying that sin pattern. They don't get overly discouraged. They keep cultivating new behaviors. All in hope. All in joy. Why? Because they know Christ has already laid hold of them, that they had nothing to bring to Him. So Paul says, Philippians 3. Now, from that steady growth leads to yet another mark of the mature, which is usefulness. A mature person, then, is useful to others. They're useful to others. They're not constantly in need, in other words. Now, I'm drawing this from Galatians 6.1. If you were here this summer, we did a whole message on this. Galatians 6.1. So if you're already in Ephesians, you can flip back a little bit to Galatians. Just a few pages. I've also got it on the screen. Paul says here in Galatians 6, 1, he says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now you may be wondering, but hang on, how does this relate to maturity? Like the word mature is not in this text. So you might be wondering why I appeal to it. Well, for Paul... This term, spiritual, can be used almost synonymously with the concept of maturity. Remember back in 1 Corinthians 3, we were talking about that? He said he couldn't address them as spiritual people because they were still the flesh. They were still infants in Christ. So he contrasts being spiritual, that's one category, with being an infant in Jesus. So it's essentially synonymous with being mature, an adult. So the spiritual person in this text is the person who is consistently bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Not perfectly, but just consistently, like we talked about back in chapter 5 of Galatians. They've learned to consistently walk by the Spirit, and they are experiencing His fruit on a regular basis. Not perfect, but it's there. So they're mature. And Paul says these spiritual people, these mature folks who are equipped to help other Christians or these, these mature folks, these spiritual people, are equipped to help other Christians. And Christians specifically who are ensnared in sin. They're caught in, they're caught in transgression. These are the less mature, the spiritual infants, who are easily overtaken by the flesh. And those desires of the flesh that Paul talked about earlier in Galatians. So this means then that another mark of maturity is that we become less needy. Now let me caveat this. God has created believers to be interdependent at all times. Even when we are spiritually mature. 
So we all need this interdependence of the body. And in that sense, we, we, we always need each other. But in another sense, the spiritually mature person is stable. They're not in need of constant help. And others of you are in need of this more constant help. And that's okay. It's how you grow up to maturity. You can't just zap yourself with Christian maturity. You start in spiritual infancy and you grow. This is the process for growing up. Having others help you in the body is part of this process to maturation. So don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. If you are more needy, if you need help, come please talk to us because we're here to do that. We're equipping leaders today as we speak to do this very thing. But God's goal, what He's seeking to do in your life is to help you learn to overcome sin in your life so that you can be useful to others. He wants you to know how to take the log out of your own eye so that you can see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In fact, the Spirit Himself has given every single one of you gifts. If you're saved, part of your benefits package are gifts from the Spirit of God Himself. And He intends every single one of you to learn to use those gifts right here in the church. His goal, in other words, is to make you a useful member of this body as He matures you. No matter where you're at, no matter how deep in sin you are, if you are a Christian, this is Christ's intent for you. And as you come to understand and use those gifts in the context of the church to help others, you are becoming mature. Now, finally, uh, this is the last mark of maturity I want to highlight. It's very important. We're going to spend probably a whole message on this at some point. But a mature person is someone who is joyful in suffering. They're joyful in suffering. They're not easily derailed by the trials of life. I didn't say they don't get discouraged by trials. I didn't say they don't. Trials aren't grieving or less painful for these people. They're just not capsized by them. And in fact, they can even rejoice. In them. There's texts on this. Man, there's so many. But James 1 is... Did I write that down? Sorry, I didn't even click it for you, did I? Sorry about that. Joyful in suffering, not easily derailed by it. So let's look... Did I write that down right? It's James 1, 2 through 4. Sorry about that. I think I have it up on the screen for you. James says, familiar verse, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be, here it is, perfect, that's the way ESV translates it, mature, may be perfect, and complete, lacking in nothing. James knows that God has designed various kinds of trials from the daily irritants to the severest of afflictions. That God's designed those things for a good purpose. To make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
to make us mature. That's the idea here. Trials, as hard as they are, can actually mature us in the hand of God. So that means a mature person will be marked by this kind of joy in trial. Not joy because of suffering itself, but because of what suffering is producing. It's producing Christ's own character according to this verse. Now, like I said on, on, in our heading here, another way we could say this is a, a, a mature person isn't quickly derailed by suffering. But the immature person often is. Doesn't mean you're not a Christian. It means you're in the spiritual infancy stage. An immature person often is. Often when we're less mature, we're tempted to misinterpret trials in our lives. We think it means that God isn't present. That's a lie. We think it means that maybe God has abandoned us. It's another lie. Or we're tempted to think that He doesn't care. That's another lie. Or we're tempted to think that He doesn't love us. Lie. Or we're tempted to think, well, He's not in control. He can't be in control. Why would He give me this? Lie. Or we might even think He is punishing us for some reason. Lie. Christ has absorbed all of your punishment if you're a believer. None of these things are true. Trials are an evidence of God's love for us, His fatherly concern, His care. They confirm our status as children as hard as they seem in the moment. They are part and parcel of how He grows us into the image of Christ. And Paul was very, very concerned that his new churches be taught about God's purpose in trials. So we don't have time. I'd I'd have you turn to 1 Thessalonians 3 here to see this. He was anxious. He planted this Thessalonian church. He was torn away from them. He's anxious to get back to them, to send someone to them, to see how they're doing, because they are suffering. And he says, I taught them. He he appeals in that letter saying, you know I taught you these things. How we're destined to suffer. That God's got a purpose. And I didn't want to see you easily moved off of those truths. Because Satan comes in and begins to tempt the immature away from the Lord in suffering. Paul knew that. And so every church he planted, he infused with the theology of suffering. So that means then that for us, God wants us to see His purpose in trials and to learn to rejoice in the fruit of what God is producing through them. And that is the mark of a mature person. So how, how could we sum this up? How could we sum up maturity? We've said a lot here, thrown a lot of verses at you. Ultimately, to be mature is a, is a pattern of thinking, desiring, and acting like Jesus. It's a pattern, not perfection. It's a pattern of thinking, right? So it's not easily duped by those lies. You're coming in, knows the truth. It's a pattern of thinking, 
pattern of desiring, beginning to, to desire what Christ desires because we believe that's better than the wreckage and carnage of sin and our fleshly impulses. Thinking, desiring, and acting like Christ. Resigning your heart and will to the truth above what you think and feel. It's a pattern of these things. It's to be like Jesus. And since Paul calls himself mature, we could also say it's to be like Paul. And any other person that was in that Philippians 3, you know, those of us who are mature. Those are marks of mature people. So literally, this is not, this is far from comprehensive. We've got all kinds of things we could highlight about what maturity is. And it is a great, great blessing to be mature, to grow up into this, to be striving for it, protects us from deception and error, provides us greater spiritual intimacy with Christ, with more of His joy, with more answers to prayer. It gives us steadiness in life and greater usefulness in the church. We have greater insight into lives of others, greater empathy, greater hope in the promises and power of God to change others. Ultimately, we hunger for maturity and we pursue it because Christ gets greater glory from our lives, from our churches, as we learn to imitate Him more and more. As we're reshaped, reformed back into the image of Christ, into the image of true humanity. And the most encouraging thing about this maturity process is that God is fundamentally committed to it if you belong to Him. It's God's desire for all of us. He is actively forming us back into His image, into the image of Christ. And next time, we're going to start looking exactly at how God does this maturing work. We're going to see that God has richly provided for our growth. He's given us absolutely everything we need to make progress, spiritually speaking. He's given us His Spirit. We're going to talk about that next time. He's given us His truth. He's provided the ideal growing condition for us in His church. Even in the world that's hostile to us, it is used by Christ to mature us. So we're going to look at each of these over the coming weeks. And then, kind of on down the road, once we get that down, we're going to carefully consider our responsibility in this process of maturity. How do we pursue it day by day? How do we overcome sin? How do we become useful to Christ in all of life? That's our goal. And I'm really looking forward to this study. (laughs) As you can tell, this has been in the slow cooker for a long time for me. Um, I'm talking years uh, of being able to bring this data together in, in a clear way. So I'm looking forward to doing that and, and, and bringing it to you. So let's pray.